the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who has expressed unabashed support of the Russian president in his war in Ukraine. He's been cited as stating the following. He says, and I quote, the church realizes that if somebody driven by a sense of duty and the need to fulfill their oath goes to do what their duty calls them, and if a person dies in the performance of this duty, then they have undoubtedly committed an act equivalent to sacrifice. They will have sacrificed themselves for others, and therefore we believe that this sacrifice washes away all the sins that a person has committed. Now this is the head of a Russian Orthodox Church, which is historically and theoretically Christian. He's just proclaimed that someone can have their sins washed away by simply giving their life for the sake of their country in a war that nearly, by nearly all accounts is not only unnecessary but also unjust. There's so much wrong with any spiritual leader making that kind of claim, much less a spiritual leader who's supposed to be operating from a Christian worldview and one who appears to be so significantly influenced by the political leader of his nation. There's no way possible for anyone who has a sound understanding of biblical Christianity and the central motif of biblical Christianity, which has as its heart not sacrifice in general, but the sacrifice of one in particular, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. There's no, one, no way for anyone who has a sound understanding of that truth to come to such a blasphemous conclusion one which will certainly lead anyone who believes those words straight to the pit of hell. He is right that we do have sin. We spent last week looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which painted a very dark picture of those who are outside of Christ, those who have not yet believed. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, dead while they walk. They are spiritually dead, having inherited from our father Adam a nature that is fallen, corrupted by sin. We all are born with the death sentence hanging over our heads. We are spiritually dead, separate from God, having been cut off from him as the source of life, having no love in our relationship with him, only enmity. As a result of our fallen, corrupt nature, the nature that we are all born with, we live in our sins. We follow the course of this world. We follow the command of the devil. We follow the delights of our corrupted flesh and mind. We are, as the text says, children of wrath, children deserving wrath, the judgment of God. This applies to every man, as Paul says in Romans 6, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He is right that we have sin. He is wrong that there's anything we can do to wipe away that sin. There's no amount of sacrifice, and yes, those who give their lives in service to their country to protect their country do make a sacrifice. No one can deny that. The question is of efficacy. Is the sacrifice effectual to take away sin? And based on what we learned from last week, the answer is emphatically no. There's no work that we can do to take away our own sin precisely because all of our works are corrupted. Again, in God's eyes, there is none righteous, no, not one. And all of our deeds are accounted as God, by God, as filthy garments. So in the final analysis, we can do nothing that would move God, the judge of the universe, to wipe our slates clean. There's no work that we can accomplish, no sacrifice that we can make, no good that we can do. Our best good is worthless to God. That's the bad news. But as I said last week, the passage that we're looking at this morning is about the good news. It is about not what we have done, but rather what God has done in spite of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is all about how God has given new life to his church. I'll give you my outline for this whole section. I've refined it just a bit to make it clear here what's going on. We see in this section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that God gives new life to his church and he does so for really three main reasons. The first we looked at last week, and that's because we're helpless. We're dead in our sins, right? We talked about that last week. 
That's verses 1 through 3. The second is because he is gracious. We'll look at that this morning. That's in verses 4 through 7. And the third, because he has a purpose, verses 8 through 10. And again, both of those last two points we'll look at this morning. Turn there if you have in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read all of verses 1 through 10. We'll focus in, we'll pick up at verse 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father, again, we come before you with grateful hearts, grateful for your word, that your word does indeed sanctify us. We ask now that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Again, the church has been given new life because God is gracious. Now, again, we spent a significant amount of time last week talking about the fallen nature of humanity, the depravity of humanity. I said at that time... At this point was parenthetical, meaning it wasn't the main point of this section, but it supports the main point. The main point we find here in this section, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is gracious. Therefore, he saves us. He has given new life to his church. Grace is functioning as the overarching description of his saving work toward us in Christ. We've heard definitions of grace before, right? God's unmerited favor. Someone created the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. However you define the term, grace is in this text intended to summarize his disposition towards those who are redeemed in Christ. God has shown them grace. One author said it this way, grace is a key theme in Ephesians. According to the introductory eulogy, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, God lavished his grace on us in the beloved, particularly by delivering us from the judgment of our trespasses. The riches of divine grace are the ultimate cause of our redemption, verse 7, and provide the reason for that deliverance. Paul receiving the gospel, his calling to minister to the Gentiles, and his ability to fulfill his missionary task from beginning to end were due solely to the grace of God. The significance of this grace is amplified further and explained not least by the number of contrasts in the immediate context of 2, 7 through 9. In particular, it is noted that although Paul's readers have experienced the reality of God's grace in the present, according to verse 7, it is his intention to lavish the full abundance of his grace upon believers in the age to come. Paul's use of grace here is consistent with how the character of God has been revealed throughout scripture. We looked at Exodus 34 where the Lord proclaimed his glory to Moses. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. I want to learn more about you. And what did he say about himself? 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, a beautiful psalm. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In Jonah chapter 4, we talked about that as we went through the book of Jonah, that all of God's acts in Jonah and sending Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, that wicked city, all of his acts were as a result of his compassion and his grace to sinners. God is gracious in the salvation that he gives to his people. But again, why? I think we've already gotten a clue of that. Look again at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. What God has done for us, he's done because he's merciful. He is compassionate. He has pity on us. That's what the word means. He has chosen to withhold from us what we truly deserve. As we've seen, Paul loves the superlatives. God's not just merciful. He is what? He's rich in mercy. He has abundant mercy towards us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not only is he merciful, but he's also loving. This is agape love that everyone has heard of before. This is sacrificial love. It is active love. It's not passive. This kind of love, as one author says, seeks the highest good in the one loved. A number of weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where we learned of God's choice of us. He chose to set his love upon us. He chose to bless us in his son. It was his prerogative to do so. Thus, we are in his son, who is the beloved one of God. And as we are in his son, we are also beloved of God. And thus, he pursues our greatest good. However, again, it's not just love. It is great love. He is rich in mercy, and he has a great love. Whenever we see the character of God expressed in Scripture, we dare not gloss over it without considering it for just a moment. This is our God. And listen, this is our God no matter what happens in this life, no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what comes today, no matter what may happen in the future, God is rich in mercy. Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. God has a great love for you. John says in 1 John that God is love. He has a great love for you who are in Christ. That will never change. You can always count on that. And he proves that. He has proven that already through the death of his son Jesus. These two elements of his character, of the character of God or his motivation to be gracious to us in our salvation. This is why he is gracious. Far too often we raise the question, what about those who have not heard? What about those who aren't saved? What about people in Timbuktu or some far off country who have not heard of Jesus? What about my cousin who's a good person but who isn't yet a Christian? Instead of asking the question, why hasn't God saved this person or that person? Why hasn't God done this great thing for me or that great thing for me? We should ask, why does God ever do anything good for worthless sinners like us? Why would he ever? We don't deserve it. We deserve nothing good but God's judgment. But he is gracious. He is rich and mercy. He does have a great love for us. He has a rich compassion for those who are enslaved to sin. He has a great love, a great desire to pursue the highest good for those whom he set his love upon on, his love upon. God is gracious already. Do you praise him for that? 
Paul punctuates this truth at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. It's all of his grace. All of what he's done for us already is an expression of his grace. Because he is merciful, because he is loving. But now what has God done to save us? What does it mean that he gives new life to his church? How has he shown us grace? Look back at the text again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is resurrection power. He has given new life to the church in Christ, or rather, with Christ. Look back at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Notice the parallels. Paul prayed there that we would know the immeasurable power towards us who believe, the immeasurable power which is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is what God did for Christ. And Paul says the same power that God used to do that is at work in us, and now he shows us how it's at work. Jesus was raised from the dead and seated in the heavenly places. The church was made alive with him and raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. But again, what does that mean? What does it mean that we were made alive with him? It means just what Jesus said in in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born Born again. In the original, the term is really born from above. Nicodemus is confused. How can I be born from my mother again? And Jesus is like, no, it's not, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You have to be given new life in the spirit. We've talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We already saw that the Holy Spirit seals us after we believed. This text is reminding us that prior to our faith, the Holy Spirit also regenerates us. He gives us new life. The Holy Spirit is the instrument of the new birth. Paul describes this in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon us richly in Christ so that we might be washed, so that we might be regenerated, meaning given new life. Jesus was born as a man of the Holy Spirit and Mary. Very earlier on in my exposure to the faith, I wondered if Jesus really had to be the Son of God, if it was really all that significant, or if he could have just been a really nice person, right? A really good person. I think the doctrine of original sin completely destroys that notion. If Jesus had been born as we are, then he would have had the same fallen nature that we do. But again, he wasn't. His birth was miraculous. He was born of the Holy Spirit. That is why the virgin birth is not a side doctrine. It is a central doctrine to know who Jesus is. He was born from above. This is so that he would have a nature that is truly man, yet untainted by sin. This made him alone suitable to be the perfect sinless sacrifice. He had no sin nature. And contrary to every other human being who walked the planet since Adam, Jesus really wanted to obey his father. The internal compulsion that he had was not to sin, not to disobey, as it is for us. But it was to do what his father wanted. It was to glorify his father in his life. He said, again, my food and drink is to do the will of him who sent me. We are not born that way. Again, Jesus said in John 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. By this he meant that the one who is born with a fleshly fallen nature will continue that way, but the one who is born of the spirit will have a new spiritual nature. That is what we need. 
We need a different kind of birth, a birth from above. We need a birth that does not originate by earthly means, a birth that does not continue to propagate Adam's fallen nature. We need a new nature, and we're given that new nature through the process of the new birth through the Holy Spirit. This is accomplished through the Holy Spirit as God unites us spiritually with Christ. In doing so, the dead life that was in us, the fallen nature, the immaterial part of us that was tainted by sin is made new. It is given new life. It is raised spiritually from death to life and forever united with Jesus. Now again, the text says that we are made alive with him and raised up with him. Some might ask, why is Jesus so significant to the church? Why is it that we cannot claim a basis for our salvation to be anything but Jesus? The word of God is clear. God only provides salvation to those who are united with his son, Jesus. He only saves us by uniting us with his son, Jesus. There is no other means of salvation. We are identified with him alone. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, according to Ephesians 1. He is Lord. We are united with him in him alone. It is his sacrifice alone, only his, that is sufficient to take away our sin. It's not just going to church and having your name on a roll. It's not as simple as a prayer offered under compulsion or emotional distress. It's not having parents who believed. That doesn't save you. It's not being a good person. There are no good people in God's eyes. The only people who are God's people, the only people who are saved, are those who have been united with the Son, those who have been given new birth, the new life, birth from above. If you don't have that new life in you, the new resurrection life of Jesus, then you are still spiritually dead in your sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You are still indulging in the desires of your flesh and of your mind. If there is no clear new life in you, no new birth, and you do not belong to Jesus, you do not belong to God, you are not saved, it doesn't matter how many times you get your name put on a roll in a church. The wrath of God abides on you. Do not be deceived, I would have the blood of no one on my head. As a preacher, I would not have you walk away from a sermon like this with the impression that you are saved if you are not. You must be born again. That applies to everyone. If you have not been born again, if you've not had the spirit work in your life to regenerate you, then you are still dead in your sins and you must repent before it is too late. Here today, you hang over the fires of the judgment of God by only a thin thread of his common grace. At any moment, his common grace, his patience with you may come to an end. And in the end, if you have not believed in Christ before you breathe your last There will be no more room for the rich mercy of God and there will be no benefit from the great love of God. Salvation is offered only today as long as it is called today. Tomorrow there will be no reprieve from his wrath. The significance of Christ to the church is that it is only in Christ that we can experience a new birth. We are given new birth, raised from spiritual death to life by God uniting us spiritually with Jesus in his resurrection. This new birth, this union with Christ, leads to something even more glorious. Just as our spiritual death led to our eventual physical death, so also our spiritual resurrection will eventually lead to our physical resurrection. This will come in the future. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. 
And one further application of our union with Christ, and I think we really have to understand this, and this is a part of the reason why we as a church have to understand what the church is and what it's not. This is why we need to be clear on what the church is and what it is not. If we have been raised up with Christ, if we are saved, then there must be new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Romans chapter 6, Paul really digs into this truth. He says there, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? If we have been saved, we are dead to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we certainly shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he goes on from there. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So what's his point? We've been united with Christ in his death, baptized into his death, he says. If that is true, then we're also, we've also been raised to new life with him. If we've been raised to new life with him, then we're never going to die again. Spiritually, we'll never die again. If we've been raised to new life with him, then we are dead to sin. Meaning sin no longer has mastery over us. Because we still walk about in the flesh. You understand that, right? Our bodies still have a will and a desire that is contrary to the Spirit of God. And we're still clothed in this weak flesh. Someday future, we'll be given a new glorified body. But we still walk about in this weak flesh. It still has passions and desires. The difference is now that we are no longer slaves to it. We no longer have to obey it. And if you are in Christ then you ought to be able to say no to sin because you are no longer its slave. I wonder, do you have the new life of God in you? Again, are you still following the course of the world? Are you still following Satan? Has he blinded you from seeing the true value of Jesus? Do you willingly, without fight, follow the desires and cravings of your flesh and of your mind? Is it easy for you to conceive of wicked things to do, particularly things that are contrary to the will of God? Do you find yourself regularly in opposition to God? Conversely, have you rejected the world? Can you see the spiritual value of Jesus, the value of knowing him, believing him, living for him? Are you able to say no to your appetites, your physical desires? Do you have the mind of Christ? Again, Philippians chapter 2, when we went through Philippians, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you have the mind of Christ operating in you, his wisdom, his desires? Do you see him as the only hope for righteousness before God? Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you want to please God or just yourself? Do you want to be around the people of God? Do you desire to serve his people? We looked at Galatians chapter 5 before 
And there Paul talks about the distinction between the works of the flesh, or you can even say the fruit of the flesh and its indulgences, versus the fruit of the spirit. Which one characterizes you? Is it the works of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit? We may and do still struggle with sin. Our spirit has been redeemed, but again, our physical bodies have not yet been raised. So we will struggle with the impulses and desires of the flesh. Freedom from the flesh will come in glory, the day of our final redemption. However, again, we don't struggle as slaves who have no choice. We struggle as those who have been freed and who can say no to sin. We are free. We do have spiritual resources now. We have the body of Christ for accountability. We have the word of God. David says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, again, who seals us and who bears fruit in our lives. We have prayer. We are not as the world who have no hope to overcome sin. Back to our text, we were dead. But again, he made us alive with him. He raised us up with him to new life, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. We now sit with him, spiritually speaking, in the heavenly places as we've been united with him. When the father looks over to see his son in the heavenly places, he sees us there with him as we have been raised up with him, as we are seated with him. That means, again, of course, that we are seated with him above all, heavenly, all powers and authorities. Even the wicked authorities, the fallen angels cannot touch us here because Christ is greater. We all know what time of year it is, right? As we're sitting here, we've already seen in the stores the masses, some unwittingly paying homage to the God of this world, to his minions, and to death itself. This is the time of year. We see the decorations come out. They probably were coming out sometime last month. But we have nothing to fear, and certainly we ought not to join with them in their revelry as they celebrate death and the one who, according to Hebrews 2.14, has the power of death. We have been rescued from that by our Savior, who is above all rule and authority. Christ is above all. We are in him, and we are with him in the heavenly places. The spiritual reality, that spiritual reality, may seem foreign to us, the physical reality of the world around us may seem more significant, but in truth, the reality of our new life in Christ cannot be any more significant than it is now. We are in Christ, and we are with Christ in the heavenly places, and someday soon we will see Christ, and the spiritual reality of our being with Christ will be a physical reality for all eternity. That day is coming. Each day gets us one step closer to that day. The world can have all of its toys. It can celebrate death all at once. But we celebrate life. Amen. We celebrate life because we have something so much better than the world has to offer. Amen. And we will have something so much better future. Well, that day must have been on Paul's mind, too. God is gracious, and as an expression of his grace, he's made us alive with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Look at verse 7 again. So that, that is a purpose clause, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace is great. He made us alive through the new birth, raised us, seated us with his son in the heavenly places, but there's more. The Spirit says that the grace of God is amazing today, but there's more to come. God's immeasurably rich grace, again, not just grace, but rich grace. Not just rich grace, but immeasurably rich grace. His immeasurably rich grace will be shown to us in the ages to come. Again, we've already been given so much, but there is much more to come. We've already been given grace through the new birth in our union with Jesus, but there's much more to come. God has more grace. And in the end, in eternity future, in the ages to come, God desires to pour forth that abundant, that immeasurably rich grace upon us in Christ. That is what we have to look forward to. Again, the unbelieving world follows the course 
of this world. We talked about course, the word course, meaning eons, the age of this world, the climate of this world, its very nature. The believer rejects the age of its world. And again, we reject it not because we don't want to have fun, not because we don't want to enjoy ourselves, but because we have something better again. We don't need to fit in with this age. We don't need to indulge in the life of this age, the course of this world, because we have a better world to come. Well, again, God is gracious. The contrast between this section and the previous should be striking. Man is utterly sinful, radically corrupt, wicked through and through. But God, God is utterly gracious, radically merciful, loving through and through. He has given new life to his church because he is gracious. He has graciously raised us up and seated us with his son Jesus in the heavenly places. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His grace is an expression of his mercy, the divine pity that has compassion on those who are weighed down and enslaved to sin. His grace is an expression of his love, that undeserved active love that God pours forth as he seeks the greatest good of his beloved. He has set his love on us. He has chosen us from all eternity and is actively pursuing our greatest good through the redemption that we have in Christ. He saved us, raised us, set us apart, all so that he can continue to display his kindness toward us, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Martin Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. When I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Now that last bit of truth urges us to consider the last point of this section, namely that God has saved us for a purpose. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These final verses are really a recap of what he has already said throughout the passage. Verses 8 and 9 provide a summary, and verse 10 then goes on to give us the ultimate purpose of our salvation. Again, if you want a summary of the gospel, the grace of God in our salvation, memorize these two verses. Well, look at the summary in verses 8 and 9. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation is about God's sovereignty. For by grace you have been saved, he says. Our salvation is all about the grace of God. God is merciful, loving, kind, and that to an immeasurable degree. His mercy, love, and kindness has been expressed in his act to raise us from spiritual death to life by uniting us with his son. We see God's sovereignty. We see man's responsibility. For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith, and this is not your own doing. Our responsibility in salvation Our response to the work of God can only be faith. We are commanded to believe. Spurgeon once said that the gospel we preach is a whosoever will gospel. We preach it to whosoever will believe. We call all sinners to faith in the God who, though we deserve his wrath, has been gracious to provide salvation for us. He says this is not your own doing. We don't, we can't do anything to gain our salvation. Again, all of what we do is corrupted by sin. There's nothing we can do. We can only believe in the one who has done it. We cannot work enough. It is not Christ plus works, according to Catholic theology. It is not Christ plus sacrifice, according to Russian Orthodox theology and Islam to some degree. It is not being the best kind of you you can, according to humanism. It is just faith in Christ and in Christ alone. We see God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We see God's generosity. It is the gift of God, Paul says. The grace of God in our salvation is a gift. 
It is a gift because we cannot earn it. If we could earn it, it would be wages, not a gift. If we could do enough to earn it, it would be wages. We already know we cannot do enough to earn it. We are helpless on our own accord. God gives the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ because he is good. We talked in Ephesians chapter 1 about God being our heavenly father, about God being a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Salvation is the gift of God. We see God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, God's generosity. We also see man's humility. It is not as a result of works. Again, the only logical conclusion to all of this is that we cannot work for our salvation. There's nothing we can do to be saved. There are no works that we can offer. Paul's trying to make this point emphatic. All of our works, again, are as filthy garments in God's eyes. And finally, we see God's glory so that no one may boast. God gets the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. He gets the glory. We can boast in nothing, no accomplishments, no works. He saved us. All of what has been done in our salvation, he has done to the praise of his glorious grace. He will share his glory with no one. There is nothing that we can do or have done for his salvation. It is all about his glory. Around this time of year, we remember the effect of the Reformation on the church. We acknowledge the truths of the Reformation with one simple statement the five solas, the four we tend to put together. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But we learn this and we submit to this truth ultimately through the word of God alone because that is the lone authority for the church. This is our salvation, all of God, none of man, all for his glory. But there's a greater purpose still in our salvation. Look back at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are we saved for? I think this is really the question when we consider the church and our salvation. Again, so many people think that they are a part of the church simply because their name is on the roll. They think they are a part of the church simply because they give. They think they're a part of the church simply because they prayed a prayer many years ago and then walked away from the church. So many people still live as though they are controlled by the prince of the power of the air but are calling themselves Christians because someone affirmed them as a Christian some time ago and they're still in their sin. This text, this verse states very clearly that God saved us for a purpose. We are identified here as his workmanship. Think about that for a moment. The term itself is from a word we derive, our English word, poem. The implication is that we are a work of art, a picture painted on the canvas of his grace, a poem crafted in his mind and delivered with perfect rhythm and precision of thought. We, the church of Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by grace through faith, are the workmanship of God. And God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make a work of art that fails. God doesn't make a work of art. He doesn't transform a person, unite them with the son, raise them from spiritual death to life, only to have them to continue to live as if they are possessed by hell itself. He doesn't do that. As we said earlier, your life ought to be different, and it ought to be different not because you do a better job living and sometimes backslide. Backsliding is not anywhere found in Scripture, by the way. But your life ought to be different because you, as a part of the church, are the workmanship of God. His power is at work in you. If that is not true, then you don't belong to him. You are still dead in your sin. You need to repent. And the text says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That speaks of the new birth. We've been created anew in Christ. We've been born again, raised from spiritual death to life. We've been made new in him. We've been made new by him. If you are a Christian, then you ought to be walking in the newness of life that God has given you. Catonsville Baptist Church, take a look around. You all know those who are on the rolls and, but who are not present. I'm not talking about those who are physically unable to come, obviously. Those who are sick and weak. I'm talking about those who can come but who do not. Those who can engage but who do not. Those who make a choice not to. 
And by their choice, they show that they don't prioritize the life that they say they have in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God speaking, not me. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you honestly see the newness of life in those who have professed faith in Christ? That's the question. That is, by the way, what it means to have a regenerate membership in a local church. A regenerate membership means, as far as we can tell, they are exhibiting new life in Jesus. They have professed faith in him, and we can see by the fruit of their life that they have trusted in him, and they're walking with him. Not perfectly, because that's none of us. But they're pursuing him. That is the trajectory of their life. That is how their life is characterized, by the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the people who ought to be on roll in any local church. Think about others, family, children, grandchildren, parents, spouses, friends, co-workers, any who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Are they walking in the newness of life? If they're not, instead of affirming them in their unbelief, you ought to be calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. More than that, again, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've not been saved by good works, but we have been saved for good works. The purpose, the reason for our salvation is not that we would get a get out of hell free card and no responsibility. We've been saved for the purpose of good works, pursuing good works, walking in good works, good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. These things should be true of us if we have been saved by his grace. For this was his purpose in saving, and God will never fail to accomplish his purposes. Again, Philippians 2, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, purpose, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One author said it this way, works are a sign that we are his workmanship. We have been saved, all of us together, the body of Christ, all of those who have been united together with Christ have been saved as God's workmanship, his poem, his work of art, crafted and put on display to the cosmos, saved for good works which God prepared for us to walk in. They are good works that have been created for us. Good is ultimately defined by God, again, as these are his works. These are morally good works, righteous works, works that mirror the actions of God. As he has sought our greatest good and salvation, so he creates good works for us to walk in that seek the greatest good for others. In other words, God hasn't created us in Christ to sit and soak as Christians, but rather to serve one another, to build up one another, to glorify him through the preaching of the gospel. Now, in our text, Paul doesn't specify exactly what those good works are that we should walk in. But as we progress through the letter, and particularly as we get into chapters 4 through 6, we'll start to see him discuss how we ought to walk as the people of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And from there, we see a series of walks. And these calls to walk in the manner that are the expression of the good works that we have been created for, works not for our benefit alone, but for the benefit of others and the glory of God. We'll see that all the more as we get into the next section, as we look further in chapter 2, why it is so significant that we are walking in good works as we think about how we have been saved and with whom.
we have been saved and how those good works impact others. Well, we've seen a lot this morning. We've been through a lot this morning. We've discussed a lot. For now, in conclusion, I'm just going to read for us verses 8 through 10 again because I think the word of God speaks for itself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father, thank you for another day gathered together around your word. Thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminder of your amazing grace. It is sweet to be able to think of, to meditate on your amazing grace. As you have poured out your rich mercy on us, as your great love has immeasurably been poured out on us, as we have to look forward to the immeasurable riches of your kindness, as you have united us with your son Jesus, raising us to new life with him, seating us with him in the heavenly places, as you have done all of this to set us apart as your workmanship, in this world, your work of art to display the goodness and the effectiveness of your grace to the cosmos, to show off your grace. You have saved us. You have set us apart. And now we are called to walk in the newness of life. Father, make that true of us. We beg of you for your glory that we wouldn't just sing of amazing grace, but that we would live out your amazing grace. We pray that for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.